the National Archives podcast series, Titanic, the official story, presented by James Cronin. Okay, thank you everyone for coming. This is a magnificent turnout. Hi, so the talk we're about to hear, hopefully you're all awaiting, is entitled Titanic, 14th to 15th of April, 1912, the official story. A little introduction. My name's James Cronin. I've been at the National Archives now for 17 years. My interest in Titanic lies mostly in the fact that my great-grandfather was a greaser on board Titanic. Unfortunately, he didn't survive, but he did make it into the water, and his body was recovered by a cable steamer, the McKay Bennett. I've concentrated a lot previously on crew. This time, hopefully, I'll give you a rounded view of what we have in the archives and how those documents tell the story. The material we're going through is largely drawn from a pack, sadly out of print, but worthwhile searching for, which was put together to mark, I think it was in 1997, when uh, James Cameron's film came out. So whatever you think about the film, it certainly engendered a huge amount of interest. And with the 100th anniversary just two years away, this interest is hopefully again being rekindled quite considerably. Before we launch into the documents, first of all, I was considering what is it exactly about Titanic that continues to fascinate people. For some, it's the fact that Titanic was a microcosm of society. The ship carried millionaires in great luxury, such as John Jacob Astor, but also emigrants looking for a fresh start in the new world, such as the Sage family, of whom more later, and Welsh pusillists Leslie Williams and David Bowen, who were travelling to America for a series of organised contests. So they weren't all luxury passengers. Some were emigrating, some were going over for specific purposes. For others, it's the sheer splendour of Titanic. She was the largest passenger steamer of her day, and perhaps the most sumptuous. Equipped with the latest technological devices, and yet furnished with all that civilised luxury could require. Her amenities included a swimming pool, palm courts, three electric elevators, a Turkish bath and a gymnasium. Some of the first-class suites were even fitted out as period rooms in the style of Robert Adams and Louis XV. French chefs and Italian waiters were to serve up a sumptuous array of dishes that would not have been out of place in the finest restaurants and hotels in New York, London and Paris. For others, it's her statistics. Titanic was a triple-through steamer of 46,329 tonnes. Built for the White Star Line by Harland and Wolfe of Belfast at a cost of some £1.5 million, she was to operate their passenger services between Southampton and New York. She was 882 feet 9 inches long, 92 feet 6 inch wide and 104 feet high. From bow to stern, she was longer than the tallest building yet conceived. And some of you may have seen the old postcards comparing Olympic and Titanic standing upright against the um, Empire State Building and dwarfing the Empire State Building. Recently, in a pub close to the archives, I told a regular who happens to work at the Kewbridge Steam Museum that I was going to be talking about Titanic and that my great-grandfather had been a crew member on board working in the engine rooms. This, for him, was a fascination. I wish I could have seen those engines and boilers, he replied. Titanic had eight triple expansion engines, with steam being supplied via 159 furnaces. For others, it's the blend of technology and arrogance. While White Star Line never directly made the claim that Titanic was unsinkable, 
they would undoubtedly have thought it. She had a double-bottomed skin, and her hull was divided into 16 watertight compartments. It would take at least five of these compartments to flood in order to sink. And that, was an, that would have taken an unpredicted catastrophe. It's partly because of this that there were insufficient lifeboats for the number of passengers she was carrying. It should be said that with 20 lifeboats capable of carrying 1,178 persons if filled to capacity, Titanic more than fulfilled the Board of Trade regulations and requirements for the period. Additional lifeboats, as well as being viewed as unnecessary, would have altered the sleek and beautiful appearance of the liner, and Titanic was above all a showcase. Let me take you through the documents now we set the scene. Document one is a transcript of the register for transmission to the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen. Maintained the Broad of Trade Series BT 110 426 and dated the 25th of March 1912. Owners of British ships were required by law to register their vessels with customs officials in the port that was designated as their port of registry. They were then issued with a certificate of registry bearing the vessel's unique official number, 131428 in the case of Titanic. And a copy of the certificate was sent to the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen. On this certificate, all subsequent changes of ownership of the notional 64 shares are lotted. This is the case with all of these ships, that what was allocated is 64ths. And the Oceanic Steamship Company, owners of White Star, the official name of White Star Line, owned all 64 64ths, so 100% of the ship. Applications for registration had to supply full details of dimensions, tonnage and engine power of the vessel and the names of the owners. Interestingly though, and that's one thing with some official records to be aware of, these details do not precisely match those given in the records of Harland and Wolfe, the builders. This shows the danger of taking the official record at face value. Dimensions and tonnage figures were sometimes reinterpreted by owners in order to minimise harbour dues. And the way in which the Board of Trade required its measurements differed from those that were used by the builders. So be careful what you read. Titanic was registered in Liverpool as a port of registry, where the head of the Oceanic Steamship Company Limited was based. The official certificate of registry went down with the vessel, so this is the Registrar General's copy that was presented to the Board of Trade inquiry into the disaster. And a lot of the records that we have are the records that were gathered for the purpose of the inquiry. Document two is a report of the survey of an emigrant ship, Surveys 27. It's in our series MT9-920F. Most people think of the Titanic as a luxury liner, but officially it was an emigrant ship. The government department responsible for merchant shipping, the Board of Trade, defined as an emigrant ship any ship carrying more than 50 steerage passengers, i.e. people travelling without cabins, sailing from a British port to ports outside of Europe. Titanic was eminently qualified in that case and as, as an emigrant ship. All such ships had to obtain a certificate of clearance before they could sail, testifying to the vessel's seaworthiness and that it was adequately provided with life-saving equipment. This certificate would only be issued after the ship had been inspected by the Board of Trade Surveyor who completed this form, Surveys 27. Titanic was certified to carry up to 3,547 passengers and crew, although her lifeboat's capacity as we have learnt, was only 1,178. Regardless of Hollywood films, the inspector's reports show that there were 3,560 life belts. And in response to the question, is the ship supplied with all the life-saving appliances required by law, the inspector's reply is emphatically yes. 
The list for the master and senior officers, the first part of the document, halfway down, reflects the late change. Herbert T. White, Captain Edward John Smith's chief officer of the Olympic, joining him on the Titanic in the same role and relegating William Murdoch and Charles Herbert Lightoller to first and second mate, respectively. Lightoller was the only one of them to survive the tragedy. Inspectors check the conditions of the hull, boilers and machinery, fresh water and distilling apparatus, the amount of coal on board, and whether it was sufficient to take her to the next coaling port, which at 5,892 tonnes of coal, it certainly was. Lifeboats and life-saving equipment, conditions in steerage compartments, provisions, medical stores, and the fitness of passengers to travel, and the capability of launching lifeboats. This was deemed to be quite rigorous at the time. Document three is then the certificate of clearance itself of an emigrant ship. This is surveys form 32, that we have again in MT 9-920F. A certificate of clearance had to be completed by the emigration officer at each port for which an emigrant ship picked up passengers, testifying to the seaworthiness of the vessel and that it met all legal requirements for transporting passengers. Certificates were issued at Southampton on April the 10th, Cherbourg later that day, and Queenstown on April the 11th. By the time the vessel left Queenstown, the total number on board is listed as 2,208. Document four, is the Board of Trade Passenger Lists outwards, which we have in a series BT27. This particular one, 780B, is a list of passengers who boarded Titanic at Southampton. Organised by first, second and third class, the passenger list provides ticket number, first and last name, whether adult, child or infant, port at which the passenger is contracted to land, bearing in mind that the ship was to dock at Cherbourg and Queenstown and not going directly to New York, occupation or calling, age, Country of last permanent residence, which is only down as either England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, British possessions or foreign countries. <laughs> Nicely imperial outlook still at this stage. And country of future permanent residence. Additionally, a further document in the same series, BT 27776-2, lists those who boarded at Queenstown. Board of Trade regulations did not require masters of ships to make returns of passengers who both embarked and disembarked at foreign ports, and there is therefore no complete list of those who boarded at Cherbourg. Harland and Wolfe employees travelling as passengers are included in the crew list, which we'll see in one moment in BT100. These BT27 records can be accessed by, by name of the ship and ports of departure and destination from Ancestors on Board section of the findmypast.com website. With ticket number 2343, John and Annie Sage were travelling with their nine surviving children. The family had sold up everything and were heading for a fresh start in the new world, having purchased a small farm in Jacksonville, Florida. John, 44, is listed as a tradesman, and his wife Annie was the same age. The children are on the passenger list in order of age. Stella, a dressmaker, 20. George, a barman, 19. Douglas, a baker, 18. Frederica Cook, 16, and then Dorothy, 13, William, 11, Ada, 9, Constance, 7, and Thomas, 4. You can imagine the mixture of hopes and expectations, combined perhaps with fear and trepidation, that this life-changing adventure must have aroused in them. We'll learn more about their fate in a while. Document 5, and one of more poignancy for me perhaps, is the Board of Trade Crew Lists and Agreements in BT100, this particular one, BT100259 for Titanic. The crew lists are generally arranged by department, divided up between deck, engine and vittling, and then by role or capacity. They're very hierarchical. 
They contain the names of all crew members, usually with last name and initial of first name, with details of age, previous ship, <coughs> address, and whether or not they survived. They continue with particulars of engagement, which forms the agreement, that is, the signing on for a particular voyage for a set rate of pay, and that happens each time for every single voyage a merchant seaman signs on, and that's their contract. Each agreement usually finished at the end of the voyage, at which stage the seamen were discharged. For Titanic, the end of the voyage was the sinking, and so White Star had no further legal obligation except to pay the balance of the wages for the voyage. Support for the families of deceased crewmen would therefore come instead from the Lord Mayor's Mansion House Funds, set up through public subscription. Crew lists an agreement for my great-grandfather, Frederick Woodford, shows him as age 40, born in Hampshire, residing at 14 Clovelly Road, Southampton, and it gives his previous ship as the Minnehaha. One good thing with crew lists and agreements when you're searching for a crewman is therefore that you can track back through previous ship to previous ship. A greaser, he was employed to service the boilers and pistons in the engine rooms. He signed the agreement on the 6th of April 1912 and boarded on the 10th of April at Southampton. So now the ship's got its complement of crew and passengers. It's ready to sail. One way we can track some of the things that happened is through the wireless signals that were picked up by various ships and in instances that we have collected by the SS Burma, a Russian East Asiatic Steam Company ship. And these I list as document six. Telegrams sent to the SS Burma by Titanic as she sank. They're an MT9920C. Throughout the day of April the 14th, Titanic had received wireless messages warning of icebergs on her course. The Russian East Asiatic liner Burma was steaming about 100 miles to the southwest of Titanic when her radio operator intercepted a stress call from MGY, the call sign for Titanic. The time was 11.45 p.m. You may have read recently claims in a new book that distress calls weren't made for a good 45 minutes. It's considered that Titanic struck the iceberg at about 11.40, so in that case, why five minutes later is the distress call picked up? Again, don't believe everything, perhaps, that you read. He asked for further information and was told that the ship had struck an iceberg and was sinking fast. The operator estimated it, it would take it would be 6.30 before Burma could arrive at the scene. At 1.45 came a final desperate message from Titanic using the old distress call CQD. CQ, often considered as come quick, is technically all stations attend and D, distress, as well as the new international code used one of the first times here, SOS, save our souls. Copies of these radio telegrams were obtained for the Board of Trade Inquiry by diplomatic contacts at St. Petersburg, then capital of the Russian Empire. If we look at them in sequence, you can see and get a picture of the sinking and what happened, what they were trying to do once Titanic had struck the iceberg. So that's our first message. We've struck an iceberg, sinking fast, come to our assistance, and it's full position given as 41 degrees 46 north, longitude 50 degrees 14 west. Burma replies, what's the matter with you? To which Titanic <laughs> must have heaved a big sigh and said, OK, we struck an iceberg and sinking. Please tell Captain to come. Burma replies, MGY, we're only 100 miles from you, steaming 40 knots. Be with you by 6.30. Our position, and it gives its full latitude, etc. And it's coding, SBA. OK, old man, as the operator, at 1.25am. 
Unfortunately, 6am would be um, far too late, as we learn. But by this stage, things are getting a bit fraught. At 1.40 comes our frantic SOS, SOS, CQD, CQD. We are sinking fast, passengers being put into boats. And the last intercepted message, women and children in boats cannot last much longer. Quite poignant messages when they're taken together like that. Document 7 photographs the survivors from the Titanic that we have in a copyright series, copy 1-556. First to arrive on the scene following wireless calls was Carpathia, getting to the scene around 4am, an hour and a half after Titanic finally sank, having navigated around the treacherous ice fields. She picked up all seven and, uh, 705 survivors. By this stage, only those who had managed to get into or onto lifeboats, either directly or having been pulled aboard, had survived. These photographs were taken from the SS Carpathia, which came to the aid of the stricken Titanic. The registration form is the standard issue Fine Arts copyright registry form kept at Stationers Hall. The pictures were not registered until the 9th of May 1912, presumably not long after the photographer had returned to England. Note the cork life jackets. Many of those who jumped into the water from Titanic wearing jackets such as these had their necks broken by the force of the impact. Document 8 is correspondence from White Star Line to the Board of Trade concerning the loss of Titanic. Again, they're in MT9 series, 920B. Initial reports of any disaster, even in today's world of high-speed communications, are often confused and unreliable. The first press statements that there was no danger of loss of life were soon proved to be wildly optimistic. These details, details of telegrams from the press agency, were then passed through the post office to White Star Line, who transmitted them to the Board of Trade. And this is what they report. On the 15th of April, White Star Line sent the following communication to the Board of Trade Marine Department in Whitehall. So far, our only information is telegram from New York as follows. Newspaper wireless reports advise Titanic collision with uh, iceberg, latitude 41.46 north, longitude 50.14 west. Women being put into lifeboats. Steamer Virginia expects reach Titanic 10 a.m. today. Olympic Baltic preceding Titanic. We have no direct information. It's then followed up with, underwriters have message from New York that Virginian is standing by Titanic and there is no danger of loss of life. And latest word from press agency is, Titanic proceeding to Cape Race, all passengers transferred presumably to Virginian. On the 16th, when news had become clearer, White Star Line forwarded on the following message to the Board of Trade. Further to our communication yesterday, we were extremely sorry to have to send the following wire this morning, referring to telegram yesterday, Titanic deeply grieved, say during the night we received word, steamer founded, about 675 souls, mostly women and children saved, we now, which we now beg to confirm. Document 9 is a sample of returns of passengers drowned, shown at the end of ship's logs that are attached with crew lists and agreements, so these particular ones divided up between first, second and third class uh, in BT 100-260. Death was no respecter of persons, as this sample of returns of passengers drowned shows. Standard forms at the back of ship's logs did not allow sufficient space for disasters of this magnitude. Think of how many drowned and the tiny amount of space that one has, just a few inches to record those. Travelling first class, John Jacob Astor, one of the richest men in the world with a personal fortune estimated at 20,620,000, was drowned, but his wife was saved. Major Archibald Butt, one of President Taft's advisers, is also listed, as are other notable Americans, including the mining magnate Benjamin Guggenheim, the founder of Macy's department store, Isidore Strauss, 
and a member of America's Davis Cup team, Carl H. Bear. Thomas Andrews was Titanic's designer, all on the first first-class sheet. On the third sheet, note the number of Scandinavian emigrants travelling third class. The statistics are that over 62% of first-class passengers were saved. Around 62% of third-class passengers drowned. Document 10, the response of the popular press. An editorial in the New York Evening Journal of 16th of April 1912. Again, gathered together for the purpose of the Board of Trade Inquiry, and this one in MT 10920A. Disasters always make good news, and the popular press was quick to start the hunt for the guilty party. The loss of the Titanic was not, in the view of New York Evening Journal, an act of God, but a crime, and blame was to be pinned in no uncertain terms and in capital letters on the owners of the vessel. I quote, The judgment of the world upon the short-sightedness, the moral manners, the criminal carelessness of the White Star Line Company in its failure to provide lifeboats sufficient to transport its passengers from a sinking ship should be crushing and exemplary. In a calm sea, a gigantic ship, freighted with thousands of lives, sinks slowly down. There is time and opportunity to carry off the steamship, as many people as the lifeboats would hold, but, all in capitals here, the lifeboats will hold only a few more than a quarter of the men, women and children who have committed themselves to the care of this steamship company. Hence the moral outrage that um, is picked up here by the New York Evening Journal. They continue, the awful waste of life was part of the programme that must have been calculated and foreseen as the concomitant of such an accident. The company simply took the risk. They staked the lives of passengers and crew on the chance that that kind of accident would not happen. You can see the press with a, a sense that I think would be picked up very much by tabloids of today, an, an early form of that example of journalism. The New York American printed a picture of Bruce Ismay, president and managing director of the International Mercantile Marine Company, which owned White Star Line, who had been travelling on Titanic and was one of the last passengers to leave the lifeboat. Surrounded by photographs of women who had lost male members of their family, under the caption, J. Brute Ismay. Ismay was widely criticised for his failure to go down with the ship and resigned from the company, and indeed from public life, in October 1912. Document 11, the response of a union leader. A letter from the Dock, Wharf, Riverside and General Workers Union, dated 18th of April 1912. Ben Tillett was one of the leading trade unionists of his day organiser of the famous London dock strike of 1889 and a man who neglected no opportunity to strike at the capitalist system. Like the editor of the New York Evening Journal, he had no doubt as to who was to blame, the ship's owners, seeking short-term profit at the expense of human life. Tillett says in his letter, The executive of the Dock, Wharf, Riverside and General Workers' Union hereby offers its sincere condolences to the bereaved relatives of the third-class passengers of the SS Titanic, whose tragic sinking we deplore. We send our sincere condolences to the relatives of the crew who were drowned. We also offer our strongest protest against the wanton and callous disregard of human life and the vicious class antagonism shown in the practical forbidding of the saving of lives of the third-class passengers. The refusal to permit other than first-class passengers to be saved by the boats is, in our opinion, a disgrace to our common civilization. Tillett there is taking a little bit of information received and extrapolating quite a lot from it. Rich and poor alike were drowned, although the way in which the accommodation on the Titanic was arranged meant that the first-class passengers, whose staterooms were on A-deck, were the nearest to the boats. 
Not all the emigrants in third class had a good command of English, and many may not have realised what was happening until it was too late. Was Ben Tillett blinded to the facts by the rhetoric of class warfare in his damning critique? The British uh, Commission of Inquiry's final report stated that no discrimination had been shown against the third class passengers. Board of Trade officials noted on the file cover of this letter that it was not to receive a reply. Document 12, the politician's response. Notice of a parliamentary question to the Board of Trade. Josiah Wedgwood, the Liberal MP for Newcastle Underline, tabled the question on the 25th of April 1912 to be put to the responsible minister in the House of Commons as to why the majority of children travelling third class were drowned when those in first and second class accommodation were saved. The statistics are that all those children travelling first and second class were saved and 65.38% of those travelling third class were drowned. I love the 0.38%. A draft reply was prepared for Mr Buxton, the President of the Board of Trade, as follows. As one of the principal objects of the investigation will be to ascertain the cause of, of the loss of life, I have no doubt the points mentioned by my honourable friend will be dealt with by the Court of Inquiry. However, this was amended simply to, yes, sir, as in the inquiry would look into Wedgwood's question. However, a note was made next to the question that it seems a pity to put questions of this kind. Document 13, a report of the British Commission of Inquiry into the loss of Titanic, taken from Board of Trade series BT 13 50. Within two weeks of the disaster, a Commission of Inquiry was set up by the Board of Trade, which was the government department responsible for such inquiries under the Merchant Shipping Act of 1894. Lord Mersey, a respected High Court judge was the chairman, and he was assisted by a panel of professional naval men and engineers. Sessions began at Drill Hall near Buckingham Palace on May the 2nd, 1912. This extract, giving a detailed description of the ship, comes from signed copy of the Commission's final report, which was subsequently published as a parliamentary paper, Command Paper 6352, and should be available from any large reference library. It was reproduced in 1990 by Alan Sutton Publishing and a firm called Chadwick Healy have put onto C.D. Romley's parliamentary papers. Every aspect of the ship was reviewed from the deck accommodation to the structure, the watertight divisions and doors, masts and rigging, life-saving appliances, compasses, etc. The report blamed the disaster on the excessive speed at which the ship was travelling and the failure to maintain a proper watch. It recommended that an international conference should be held to look into the whole question of safety at sea. Document 14 is Alfred Ormond's account of his escape from Titanic, a statement of evidence given at the British Commission of Inquiry, which you find in MT 9920D. Ormond, a French cotton agent based at Le Havre and seasoned transatlantic traveller, had joined the Titanic at Cherbourg. He describes the last night from the viewpoint of a first-class passenger, dinner followed by a quiet game of bridge in the Café Parisienne, and then the moment of impact with the iceberg. Ormont says, I have crossed the Titanic 13 times, and the shock, impact, was not a great one. I thought it was caused by a wave. Clearly no one knew what to do next, and no one even attempted to organise an orderly evac evacuation of the ship. Were crews and passengers alike mesmerised by the myth of unsinkability? Ormont put on his life jacket, then took it off, then put it on again. When he did finally decide to jump aboard the boat, it was against the advice of other passengers, as he says. While I was still on boat deck, a, a boat was let down. The first officer saw me and asked me if I wanted to get in. Some of the passengers shouted at me not to get in, as they had such confidence in the ship. 
I saw that the sea was very calm, and on calm reason I thought it better to jump into the boat and then see what would happen. Lucky man. Eventually, as with all other survivors, he was rescued by SS Carpathia and taken to New York. Document 15 is a digest of the testimony given at the hearing into the loss of Titanic before a subcommittee of the Senate Committee on Commerce. We have a copy of this in MT9920G. Before the Carpathia had even docked in New York on April the 19th, and the survivors of the disaster had disembarked, William Alden Smith, Senator for Michigan, had secured his own appointment as chairman of the subcommittee to investigate the loss of Titanic and empowered to summon British subjects to give evidence before it. Although Titanic was a British ship, White Star Line was owned by an American trust, the International Mercantile Marine Company, IMMC, and could therefore be sued under American law if negligence could be proven. The Digest of Testimony gives a comprehensive survey of the evidence of witnesses before the committee. Graphically illustrated by quotation and under boats in detail tells how lifeboats were disembarked. The full Senate committee transcripts of the hearings can be found online at titaniciquiry.org. Document 16 is a report from the British Ambassador to Washington regarding the Senate Committee Inquiry report into the loss of Titanic. It was written on the 27th of May, 1912. The Senate Committee report, forwarded by the British Ambassador at Washington, concluded by condemning the laxity of regulation and hasty inspection of the Board of Trade. The British Ambassador reported that, the report, which on the whole may be said to be couched in moderate terms, attacks with some vehemence the commander of the Californian, and lays considerable stress on the small heed that was given to the warnings of the presence of ice in the track of the Titanic. While the method, method of filling and launching the lifeboats is also censured, it further condemns the hasty inspection of the vessel by the Board of Trade Inspector during her trials. International agreements were recommended to the effect that a sufficient number of lifeboats carry every passenger and crew that four of the crew guild in the management of lifeboats should be assigned to each lifeboat and should be drilled once a month. Further, that the passengers should be assigned individually to each lifeboat and that the shortest route from the staterooms to the lifeboat to which each passenger is assigned should be posted in each room. And regarding wireless telegraphy, there should be an operator on continuous duty. There were some quite dryden's attempts by the Senate committee to ensure that such a disaster should never happen again and that countries should get together to establish a formal convention. Document 17 is from the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen's official register of deceased passengers in BT 334-52. Reported in the month of June, it took until August before the names of all those subjects on board the Titanic who lost their lives were registered by the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen. Without the recovery of a body, those who lost their lives are listed as supposed drowned. The entries are found appended at the end of the June section subsequently. While most of the pages in these volumes have the details of many ships where perhaps one or two people lost their lives during a voyage, on page after page of the list of, uh, of the dead in this volume is prefaced Titanic, official number 131428, all date of death 15th of the 4th 1912, place of death latitude 41 degrees 16 north, longitude 50 degrees 14 west. United in death, the passengers are not arranged by class, but by surname, which makes a big difference to the passenger lists and things like that. All 11 members of the Sage family may be found here in alphabetical order with a note of their last address, 246 Gladstone Road, Peterborough. Document 18 
is then the crew version of this, the RGSS Register of Deceased Crew in BT334-53. The same is true with the return of the deaths of seamen. Unlike crew lists and agreements, they're listed alphabetically, free of any hierarchy of department and role or capacity. On the list of dead is my great-grandfather, Frederick Woodford. He left behind a wife and two daughters, the eldest of whom was my grandmother. Within the space of two years, her mother had died of pneumonia and her sister of diphtheria. Document 19 is a copy of a letter from Stanley Lord, captain of the SS California, to the Board of Trade on the 10th of August 1912. Both the British Commission of Inquiry and the American Inquiry into the loss of Titanic criticised Lord, who was captain of the SS Californian and had been in the vicinity, for failure to come to the rescue of the sinking vessel. The British report unequivocally stated that the Leyland liner California might have reached Titanic if she had attempted to do so. In a letter to the Board of Trade Marine Department, Lord protested otherwise. He writes, with reference to Lord Mersey's report on the Titanic disaster, he states that the Californian was 8 to 10 miles from the scene of the disaster. I respectfully request you to allow me, as master of the Californian, to give you a few facts which prove she was the distance away that I gave viz. 17 to 19 miles. One reason, he says, is had the Californian been within 10 miles from the Titanic, she would have been in sight at this time from the Carpathia, as she was in the same position when she stopped at 10.30pm the previous evening. In the event, Lord was forced to resign by his employer's Leyland Line, and his career was effectively ended by the adverse publicity he received, even though he had never been named as a defendant or legally represented at any of the hearings. The Department of Transport reopened the case in 1990, and its report... RMS Titanic reappraisal of evidence relating to SS Californian, published in 1992, concluded that the distress rockets had been seen from the Californian, but that no reasonably probable action by Captain Lord could have led to a different outcome of the tragedy. Document 20 is a statement of claim and the verdict in the case of Ryan versus the Oceanic Steamship Company, 30th of June 1913. It's in a Supreme Court series, J54. Paper 1548. Who was liable in law for the Titanic disaster? No general compensation was paid out by the Oceanic Steam Navigation Company, usually known as White Star Line, nor by the government, despite the fact that the inadequacy of the Board of Trade safety regulations was tacitly acknowledged by the British Commission of Inquiry in its recommendations for change and was openly condemned by the American Committee of Inquiry. Tickets for Titanic had printed on the back a statement that the owners would not be liable for any loss or damage caused by the negligent navigation of the vessel by the company or its servants. This was not a form of ticket approved by the Board of Trade and questions were asked in Parliament about the need to bring steamship companies in line with the regulations governing the liability of railway companies towards their passengers. Thomas Ryan, whose son Patrick was drowned when Titanic sank, brought a legal action together with the family of another victim, James Moran. Assisted by the MP Thomas Scanlon, they sued the owners for damages. The jury followed the verdict of the Commission and the judge awarded in favour of both plaintiffs. The company appealed against this judgment, but the appeal was dismissed and the verdict of negligence in Titanic's navigation was upheld. Claims against the owners in the United States, brought in the Southern District Court of New York State, were eventually settled out of court in December 1915, despite claims as high as $1 million submitted by Renee Harris for the loss of her husband. Only $663,000, or at the time £136,000, was shared out amongst all claimants. The final document I've selected 
Document 21, is the ratification by George V of a Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea. And this is what had been recommended and what was finally put into practice. The first international convention for the safety of life at sea was convened in London in 1913 in response to the sinking. This resulting treaty, dated at the Court of St James on the 22nd of December 1914, with the ratification deposited on the 30th of December, is the first version of the convention of which newer versions were adopted in 1929, 48, 60, and the latest one in 1974. It prescribed the number of lifeboats and other emergency equipment that ships should carry, along with safety procedures including 24-hour radio watches. Each ship should have lifeboat space for every person embarked, and lifeboat drills were to be held during each voyage. So some things were at least eventually learnt from the tragedy and brought forward. And that's where I'd like to conclude the story of the Titanic taken from the documents that we hold here. So thank you very much for listening. This event was recorded live on the 15th of April 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>